Hello, everyone, and welcome to this edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Pete Waltz. Over the past weeks, we continue to focus on the biggest issues affecting businesses and organizations globally, the spread of COVID-19. And in addition to touching on important stories and events happening in countries all around the world, we're always fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that are practicing on the ground in these jurisdictions, as well as to bring in experts, subject matter experts from across a wide range of business disciplines. Today's program is our first to focus on best practices and expert advice on how to develop a reopening safety strategy in the wake of COVID-19. Specifically, what resources and support services are available to businesses as they begin to reopen their doors to coworkers, customers, and the general public. Leading our discussion is Jennifer Brown, partner at Ice Miller, an ELA member firm in Indiana. Jennifer has hosted and moderated a number of our programs in the past. We're happy to have her back in today's broadcast. Let's welcome Jennifer and her special guest to the program. Great. Thank you, Pete, so much. Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I am so excited about today's program. I'm joined today by Dan Angling. He is with Caramita. Uh, he's Director of Industrial Hygiene Services at Caramita. Uh, Dan has an undergrad in public health. Uh, he has a master's in occupational safety management. Um, and uh, just really looking forward to his remarks today. Um, Caramita is uh, a company that uh, my firm, Ice Miller, has been um, working with for decades, in fact. Um, they are an environmental health, safety, and sustainability consulting firm with offices across the United States. Um, our clients work with Caramita regarding permitting, uh, remediation services, and even um, partner with Caramita. We partner with Caramita on some litigation matters uh, where Caramita has served as uh, expert witness. Um, as, as Pete mentioned, today's program is a little different than what uh, we historically offer through the ELA. It is not intended to be a legal program. Uh, so we have a technical expert with us. I'm so excited to hear what Dan has to share with us today. Um, let me tell you a little bit about our audience, too. Um, my understanding is our audience is made up of a number of ELA member firms, uh, both in the United States and across the globe. Um, and as well as a number of our clients and, and others who are joining us today. So um, really excited about today's program. And um, one other thing I'll mention about Dan before I turn it over to him uh, is that he was uh, perhaps most recently involved in consulting with a client of his on the opening of shopping malls across America. Uh, so this was, um, for a lot of us in the States, uh, a signal that there's some potential return to normalcy when shopping malls open and can be open safely. Um, so hopefully Dan can touch on that a little bit today too. Um, that was something that I came across as I was reviewing his bio and I wanted to make sure I made reference to. So uh, with that, I'll turn it over to Dan and um, we'll be uh, interjecting here and there with some questions. So Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jennifer. Um, I will, uh... I'll try to keep this not too far into the weeds as far as the technical information is concerned, um, but yet still trying to get to the to the real matter at hand and the questions that have been submitted in that content, as you mentioned. So thank you for that introduction. Um, I'll just dive right into it so we don't waste too much time. Um, firstly, one thing that we want to understand right now, right off the bat, is that there are resources that are available. There are resources in both the governmental uh, sphere as well as the private sector as well as the international uh, uh, community and, and so a few of those uh, for those listening in the united states of course are the cdc uh, osha and epa so the cdc based in atlanta georgia uh, is our centers for disease control and prevention they've given a lot of helpful information that you can go to uh, on your own on their website uh, they have been you know there's lots of commentary on on that as well um, but that is kind of a universal population-wide set of guidance that, that you have at your, at your fingertips. Um, OSHA and EPA, uh, they're in Washington, D.C., but there are many state programs as well, uh, depending on the state. And so this uh, respectively refers to the relationship between employers and employees and the relationship between uh, those in commerce and the environment for the EPA. Uh, the World Health Organization in um, 
in Geneva, Switzerland is uh, also a great resource. Of course, um, they are looking at the international community at large. And so one thing I would encourage you to do, whether you are in the United States or elsewhere, first look to your local resources, look to your local governmental resources and understand uh, that that those resources are, are more tailored to the, the conditions and the challenges local to your establishment. And so they may bring in a better idea of what you're facing. And so uh, look to your local community, look to your your, your national community. Uh, if you're if you're not in the United States, uh, there are good resources there. So that's that's kind of where a lot of this is coming from. In the United States, of course, as many of you know, we have uh, generally these three tiers that we refer, refer to with the federal government, the state government, and the local government. And the relationship uh, is is often fragmented and it's a little bit different in how they communicate depending on the topic. Uh, but in this case, the federal government is, we're, we're basically seeing things from agencies like the CDC and from the, uh, from the uh, administration, so from the executive branch. As it comes down to the state level, it's varying widely by state, from governor's offices to state departments of health. Uh, and then when we get down to the local level, a lot of that is enforcement level, uh, county, county level, and uh, city level. So th there are lots of different places where these regulations and where these uh, guidelines are coming from. And sometimes they do conflict, which does make it rather challenging. But because we have such a large audience here, I'm going to direct you to that on your own. Make sure that you are, are looking to those local resources. So, Dana, so let me interrupt at, you there for yeah, a second. Go ahead. Um, so, so you are working with clients, um, you know, across multiple jurisdictions and helping them devise policy and plans and um, to reopen um, and just to maintain compliance. So, um, is your tendency to err on the side of the most restrictive um, in? when you're working with clients that are across any number of jurisdictions, um, what's kind of the default setting for you typically? Yeah, so we, of course, across the country, just the United States, uh, we, we, we stretch beyond the United States, but in the United States, we have uh, states that have absolutely no restrictions, all the, and those are typically the lower population states, all the way to those that, like New York that have high, much higher restrictions, New York and California. Uh, and part of that, in a large part of that, has to do with their larger populations. Uh, so to answer that question, um, we don't really want to take New York's regulations and apply them to Montana. And, and so we will not take the most restrictive things and, and then talk to Montana, you know, a, a client in Montana and say, you need to be doing this because they're doing it in New York. It's a little more nuanced than that. And so we do focus on on becoming a little bit more specialized and saying, okay, if you're local municipality or your local government asks you to do something other than one that's across the country, that's totally fine. We just want to be aware of what locally is required. Yeah. So so for a, a client in uh, multiple jurisdictions, you really are kind of tailoring that and maybe trying to uh, concoct policy that is, um, you know, segmented. These kind of are similar. These are similarly situated and, and really creating it um, yeah. in, in parallel. Yeah, and as a general rule of thumb, if you are a, a multi-state organization and you're stretching between states that have very different regulations, uh, it's it's probably advisable. What I advise is that you create your initial policy with greater restriction and then pare it down. It's just it's more of a process description or process uh, recommendation. It's easier to pare down a policy than it is to build up a policy. Uh, typically, so if you're going to go through the whole process, make your restrictive policy and then pare it down where you're able to. Yeah. And so, so moving from there, it, yeah, about, go ahead. Yeah, I think you want to talk a little bit about just who's drafting these policies. Exactly. Yeah. So within an organization, uh, management roles and responsibilities are going to be very important because you, you, you want to make sure that you're not stepping on each, each other's toes and you're streamlining the process to, to ensure that it's happening quickly. Obviously, the timeline to reopen is drawing near very, very quickly in many states. Uh, in some states, it's already passed, of course. And so for, from the corporate management perspective, this is for a multi-site corporation where you do have a corporate management structure that oversees other sites. If you have a local uh, corporation structure that doesn't have multiple sites, of course, that's just your lead management on site. So one of the most important things you want to look at is the legal review and guidance phase. And, and that is critical because a lot of these things don't have a whole lot of precedent to them. Uh, and a lot of these things uh, have very personal application. And we don't want to do things that ultimately of course, violate the law uh, or or violate employment relationships or contracts. And so if you're requiring things of the public or requiring things of your employment, 
personnel or your employed personnel, you want to run that by your HR attorney. Uh, you want to run that by your liability attorney, of course, uh, just to make sure that that review of your policy and the guidance for implementation thereof is is you know clean and and you're not doing anything that you really shouldn't be doing just out of uh, initial knee-jerk reaction. And so that should incorporate your corporate goals and your operational policies. Your operational policies, of course, are going to have a profound impact on whether or not a policy is is uh, doable, enforceable, implementable, if that's a word. <laughs> uh, effectiveness of protection versus cost versus employee and public perception is, is kind of what we're trying to balance here. And I'll ask kind of a, a question for you to think about, is that familiar? Have you heard that before? Effectiveness of protection versus cost versus employee perception. And one of my main points here is it should be it should be familiar, and it should be familiar because this is what we do with safety, right? This is what we do with health and safety. This is what we always have done. My field in particular focuses on health and safety in manufacturing and retail and and other establishments and field work and construction. And we always are looking at this uh, relationship. And so, you know, if cost was the only thing, initial upfront cost, we wouldn't do anything for safety. If initial un upfront cost and hidden costs of injuries was the only issue, then we would we would do more for safety, but it wouldn't necessarily care about employee public perception. If we hurt employee or public perception, we're either not going to get people in the door or we're going to have trouble having employees coming back. And all of these are challenges that we're facing right now with reopening because employees are scared to come back. Employees are fearful of everything that they're seeing on TV and hearing on the radio. And so uh, we want to make sure that we are taking these three factors deeply into consideration and not waiting too much on just one. So moving from the corporate management toward the frontline management, uh, frontline management is really policy support and implementation. You can have a policy, but it's just not going to work unless you support it, implement it, make sure it's working, make corrections. It's a living policy. It's a living document. It's a living process. And it must be adjusted because we are changing things. And people are going to respond differently than what we expect them to respond with. And so our expectations are, are as good as they may be. They're probably not going to be perfectly accurate out of the gate. We want to ensure that uh, we make those critical adjustments as they're required. As far as employees are concerned and their responsibilities, it's the same as a safety policy or a safety program. It's the same as if you had a forklift or a lockout tagout program. You want to make sure your employees understand the program. They understand the, the hazards and they understand what they need to do to adhere to the program to mitigate those hazards. Mm -hmm. We don't want to make it more complicated than it needs to be. And we certainly don't want to change things uh, about our process that don't require changing and just establish a, a, a tougher implementation protocol. Uh, and so what about visitors and public protection? Uh, this is now, again, another thing that's going to be pretty critical from a legal perspective. What can I ask the public to do? What can I require the public to do? Uh, this, is, this is challenging. Uh, it may look different in, place, in places other than the United States. Uh, we have uh, certain protections in place for a lot of these things that other countries may not have. So you want to take that into consideration as well if you are elsewhere. Um, but these things include things like engineering controls. And I'm going to get into that later a little bit more on engineering controls and what I mean by that term. Um, but things like implied directives. Uh, we, can I expect people to follow, you know, taped off X marks on the floor that are six feet apart? Or do I need to put a sign up like an express directive or a person that's literally saying to them, stay six feet apart, you know, if that's if that's where you're going with this policy. And so you got to understand um, what can I expect the public to do? What can I require the public to do? Um, and then am I providing PPE? Well, some PPE requires training. Do I need to make sure that the PPE I provide uh, only re only is that that does not require training. If it requires training, of course, that complicates the whole issue. And so these are all things that you really want to consider with respect to your unique establishment. So when we get into, you know, what are we doing about engineering controls and that kind of stuff? Of course, the first big thing that comes up is disinfection. This is a this is a virus after all. This is a biological problem. This is it grows into various factors of politics and finance and everything else. But it initially at its core is a biological problem. And so we, when we look at disinfection strategies, um, we got to think: Okay, are we going to do this internally or externally? Do we have the staff internally to perform disinfection operations, or do we need to bring in ex uh, external or or uh, contract forces to come in and help us out with that? One thing I I'm going to recommend right off the bat, and that's kind of this picture here is, is demonstrating this. If I bring in outside forces and I and, and for my or for my internal uh, cleaning uh, staff, I change all kinds of protocols. I change about everything about their job. 
that they have come, you know, over the years to, to become used to. Uh, and I and I talk about differences between cleaning and disinfection, and I just slam it all on, all on them at once. The learning curve is steep, and generally the learning curve, if it's steep, it doesn't just take them a long time to traverse it. it they just run off the rails, right? So if the learning curve is too sharp, uh, typically you, you just disregard everything and and a lot of stuff falls through the cracks. It's, it doesn't just slow the process down, it makes the process ineffective. And so we wanna keep that in mind. If you can utilize your current situation, you can utilize your current equipment, you can utilize your current SOPs, your standard operating procedures, uh, that's gonna make for two things, uh, to make two things a lot easier. Firstly, it's gonna make your implementation speed a lot faster. And secondly, because you already created it all. And secondly, uh, it's gonna make it a lot easier for your employees to understand what it is that they're supposed to be doing. And, and it cuts down on the necessity of training and it cuts down uh, on, a, on a new uh, understanding of what their job is. And so you wanna consider your normal and see how much of that normal that you can actually utilize. So uh, employee protection and responsibilities Go ahead. Dan, you're, you're really talking about starting from whatever your baseline is. So start from where you are and, Absolutely. Uh, and, and really have a comprehensive understanding of that. And that may that in and of itself may take some effort, right? We, we may not in leadership know where the baseline is. Um, so that's going to require some intelligence gathering about, well, what were we doing before so that we now know how to up our game and what's going to actually stick for the long term. So PPE is um, now a regular part of everyone's vocabulary, um, probably not new to your mm -hmm. vocabulary, but for the rest of us, no. you know, for the vast majority of, of us, uh, PPE is relatively uh, new nomenclature. So there have been uh, a lot of, there's been a lot of controversy around PPE um, throughout the pandemic, um, but there's also been some confusion about its efficacy. So can, can you walk us through a little bit of that? And yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, right. So PPE is, as you mentioned, is nothing new. Uh, PPE goes back to, I mean, PPE goes back to the, the ancient Chinese. You know, I mean, you, you can bring this way, way back. So we have studied PPE for a long time. We made really great progress in World War II and World War I, actually, on, on what kind of PPE we can use to, to uh, protect against biological and chemical external factors that were new to humanity and new chemical derivatives, new products. And so um, PPE has been studied for a long time and we have a very good understanding of what the effectiveness of PPE is. The National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health or NIOSH uh, certifies respirators in this country. There are other agencies that certify respirators in other countries um, and, and give them their ratings. Uh, but when we, one thing that you probably have all heard of is the N95, for example. That is just one kind, that N stands for NIOSH. And that is just one, uh, sorry, the, the NIOSH is, is NIOSH is the organization that gives the N95 rating. That N stands for one of the factors in its protective ability and what it's resistant to. And so there are a huge number of different respirators from the N95 all the way to the CBRN for chemical, biological, nuclear, and radiological protection. And so there we understand this, and this is nothing new. So that's a really good point. Um, and so one of those, one of the things that that leads us into is if you don't understand the effectiveness of PPE and you're just going to throw it at a situation, it, it may not work and it may not actually be helpful. And in fact, it may be very detrimental. So OSHA doesn't want us to wear, just to switch to OSHA for a second, they don't want us to wear PPE for no good reason. They want us to evaluate every situation in which we're using PPE and, and apply the correct PPE because it can actually become detrimental. One of the very basic examples is, you know, you, not, not all gloves are good for all purposes. You know, you can use a, a glove that a, a guy cutting down a tree with a chainsaw might use and, and put that on a, on a surgeon and say, well, you want to do that, you want to wear this glove because you, you work with sharp objects and you might cut your hand. Well, that's, that's you know, the, the trade-off is, is horrible there. You want manual dexterity and precision motor movements for that surgeon much more than you want uh, a cut resistance. And as PPE gets better, we're getting both. It's amazing. We're getting cut resistant, highly manual manual dexterity, uh, you know, gloves. And so uh, these things are are all something that that should, should you should understand. And if you don't have a good grip on it, contact a professional or read more about it. The resources that are available. And and as far as that's concerned, there is minimal specific pres precedent for the current situation. 
but we do understand a lot about the individual factors. And so that's what I'm about today is understanding what it is that we can take from what we know from the past, from our profession and apply it to a new situation that's quite a bit different. So the hierarchy of controls brings us right there. Uh, OSHA and, and the, the uh, uh, industrial hygiene and the safety industry at large has used this for years. This is the inverted triangle the hierarchy of controls. It starts with elimination. What's the best way to make sure you never die in a plane crash, never get on a plane, right? But you can't always do that. If you wanna go to China overnight, you can't avoid getting on a plane. And so elimination, well, that's the best one, but it's not always feasible. So we substitute. Instead of flying a small plane that might run out of gas over the Pacific Ocean, we get on a bigger plane that's going to get us all the way there. So we substitute for a safer option. Uh, engineering controls, you know, instead of instead of flying low to the ground with the windows open, we create a, a pressurized cabin and we can fly higher with thinner air. And, and these are safer uh, options uh, for administrative controls. These are these are usually very closely tied to PPE, where you know the ad, the admin in the in the uh, in the in the cabin, you know the flight attendant will say, you need to put on your seatbelt or please don't stand up when the captain puts on the turbulence light. Right. So these are things that that are just a rule that you must follow. But you see, they're far down the line from elimination because I can just choose not to follow the rule. If I choose not to follow the rule, it's all out the window. And so if that's my only protection, you know, that it's not that great, but it still is a type of protection. And then PPE is the final thing. Um, if I'm relying on my PPE to protect me as my first line of defense and it fails, it's also my last line of defense. And so we want to protect with elimination, substitution, engineering controls, administrative controls first, and then PPE. And if we protect it efficiently with engineering controls, for example, you don't want to be wearing PPE for no good reason. And that's kind of where I'm coming from on, on the previous topic, OSHA doesn't want us to just put PPE on without good reason. So moving moving toward cleaning protection responsibilities in, into traditional hazards and PPE and containment, one of some of the things we're seeing are you know plexiglass shields at interfaces where two humans are talking to each other face to face. Um, we are seeing uh, PPE being provided to the public, provided to employees, and we wanna understand that, that all of that needs to be really well thought through. As far as the contractor protection, a lot of people have asked this question, well, what about contractors bringing in the virus potentially, maybe contractors getting sick and, and, and blaming it on our site? One thing I'm gonna say is harken back to this. This is a biological issue. The virus doesn't understand contractual relationships. If you wanna protect people, you have to treat humans as humans and objects as objects and you know, equipment as equipment. And, and so if it's a contractor there, yes, there may be differences in responsibilities and differences in legal authority and differences in OSHA requirements. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're just humans and they're still, you know, capable of carrying that virus or, or contracting that virus. So not, well, to, not to overcomplicate the contractor issue. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the things that just in, in our discussions and, and the, the material that you've provided already is just a really good reminder that while the virus and uh, the transmission of this particular virus is, um, you know, gripping the global community and is very new and it is a novel mm -hmm. virus, this is not the only virus that people like you have been contending with. Um, and so I, I think that it's just a, a good reminder that we are not, it may feel sometimes as an average uh, citizen of the, of the globe that we are starting from scratch, but indeed we are not starting from scratch. There's a great deal of precedent here uh, and a lot of background um, that, that is available and at, and at our disposal. Um, Sometimes it feels like it's a little hard to parse through all of the content. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about the CDC. Yeah, the the, um, the the difference in the precedent that we have now, what we don't have precedent for, is really the scale. You know, we've seen these things before. It's a much different scale than we've typically seen. And yeah. so, you know, we don't want to uh, just get overwhelmed by the scale when we can apply known principles that we have worked years to to establish. Um, so for, as far as cleaning practices and official guidance, I'm just gonna leave it at follow the guidance. The guidance is there, it's very clear, it's very easy to understand. Now there are gonna be challenges with application and that's where you can bring an expert in 
that's where you can uh, look to other resources and look, okay, how are we actually going to implement this? Because, of course, it's in generic terms because the CDC is pushing this out to a hospital and an iron foundry and a you know a manufacturer of, of toys and a construction company. Very, very different entities are all receiving the same guidance. And so, of course, it's not going to be very specific. So in that process of making, of increasing site specificity, you may need to bring in an expert. But by and large, I, I'm going to encourage you, look at the guidance, follow the guidance. It's really not terribly uh, difficult uh, to understand. And if you do need help, there are those that are available to help. Let's switch gears a little bit and move into facility management and governance. This is uh, a topic that, that really we see in our everyday life. If you go to the store, you're going to see a lot of these things. This, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend that this is one of those topics that should you, you should potentially consult an attorney on because the challenges of requiring people to do things uh, and the pushback that you're undoubtedly going to receive from requiring people to do things is a highly, uh, it's, a, it's a tumultuous area to, to be in. And, and it's a challenging thing to understand from a legal perspective, what are my authority lines, all that. So, uh, so that is my biggest recommendation there. But we can look at a couple things first. Uh, what are some of the warning symptoms of this virus? And what are some of the, what are some of the, the things you want to avoid? So, dry cough, tiredness, and fever. These are the the first three, the top priority that get given by the CDC. But look at all of these, and I'm willing to bet that every single person on this call has had a dry cough at some point, has been tired at some point, and probably has had a fever at some point. They have also added things like runny nose. Well, I'm, I mowed my lawn yesterday, and and I have uh, a light allergies. Well. Do I have coronavirus, right? And because my allergies are flaring up. So the, these are things that, this is allergy season. And so you don't wanna have too many uh, interferences. And that's something that we use in industrial hygiene all the time is the term interference. As I'm looking to analyze something and I'm looking to chemically or physically analyze something and there's an interference in my understanding and an interference in my interpretation, I wanna boil that interference out. That's a very basic scientific principle. And so uh, if we're gonna make broad, uh, applicability of a policy that that uh, prevents entry into a premises on the basis of tiredness or runny nose, you know, you are very quickly approaching a problem area, and that even be misinterpreted as uh, as as some kind of of uh, a discrimination uh, where you know somebody doesn't really truly understand, and they say, well, that guy got in and that guy didn't, and then now I'm not allowed to, so what makes me different? I don't agree with any of this. And so these are very important factors that you really wanna plan for so that you don't find yourself in some hot water. So uh, just a couple thoughts on that. Moving through building disinfection is going to be uh, something that of course, as in the ongoing weeks to come and months to come, and uh, I won't say years, <laughs> but we don't know, uh, building disinfection is is uh, something that's going to be important. So, some of the some of the things that have been implemented: uh, overnight hours. Do we shut Do we shut down early? We're seeing we're seeing a lot of establishments shut down early for the ability just to have the ability to clean within their normal operating hours. This is a great option. This is a great option for a couple of reasons. One, it gives you some time to be able to to clean, especially if you're a 24 hour establishment. But even if you're not, let's say you're open from 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. and you're a supermarket. Well back to my point on changing policy so much that people have a steep learning curve let's try not to disrupt people's lives more than they already have been and so you know from not from 8 a.m to 10 p.m we've got let's say we have two shifts in there and and those maybe one in the middle that kind of overlaps for some six hour work or maybe some after school work your grocery uh, uh school <laughs> school hasn't been a thing for a while uh, but you, you know after school you're a grocery store and you're bringing baggers and that kind of thing what you don't want to do is say, okay, it's now eight to midnight. We need to find out how to switch everyone's schedule around to have two hour, a two hour block and disrupt everything else in the, in all of our employees' lives to be able to clean when it's possible to shore it up to 8 PM closing and keep your normal staff hours and clean until 10. So these are just some simple principles that you can apply uh, in order to, in order to decrease that learning curve and decrease the amount of change. So that's a principle for responsibility, responsibility for personal spaces. You know, if, if you have an office space, a person is in there, that's their responsibility. You can have a rules that say don't enter individuals' offices, talk from the door, that kind of thing. That kind of avoids the whole issue. 
um, you know, a, a person's own personal office, if no one else goes in, it, it's kind of like their own home. It makes it easier. Uh, the frequency of cleaning, of course, is dependent on the frequency of, of uh, uh, occupancy. How many people are coming through? How often they're coming through? Are they coming through in big rushes? Can we have a rush and then clean after that, like a lunch rush and dinner rush at a restaurant, that kind of thing? Disinfection staffing, that goes back to, is it internal, is it external? Uh, chemical selection and dilution. Uh, this is sometimes a, a challenge uh, to to the to the, uh, uh, the industry at large, really, um, because uh, chemicals for cleaning are not always readily available, and they're frequently not available uh, for you know across the board. All your selection isn't there, especially early in April, and so you want to use what you have and use something that's effective and be be creative with it. We have pools across the country that are using dilutions of chlorine solution uh, for for surface cleaning, and the, the the point of that is you know you're you're using something that you have in great bulk that you typically haven't used for that purpose, but it works. So be creative. <clears throat> I'm going to skip through here. <clears throat> um, the the entrance requirements, that's where it gets a little bit dicey. Um, people are, are not frequently happy with uh, being turned away from an establishment that they've come and spent their time getting to. And, and you know, before you know it, you have a temperature requirement and they got off of a hot bus and they're going to uh, to pay a, a fee somewhere and they go into the to the municipal building and before you know it, their temperature is over uh, a, a certain threshold and they're denied entry. Uh, this, if it's if it can be avoided, if you can if you can afford to treat everybody as positive as if they're positive and have other protections in place, that's probably going to go better for you. That includes, of course, high hand hygiene, a high frequency of hand hygiene, mask use. Uh, UV disinfection of objects, you know, put your phone and keys in this thing and, and upon entry and you can get in. These are, they have their own challenges, but they're fairly simple to implement. Hey, Darren, as far as operations are concerned. Yeah. I, I think you said something really important there that, that I just want to highlight. Um, if, if it's possible to treat everyone as if they're positive, that's probably mm -hmm. more effective. And it sounds to me embedded in that comment is, it's effective probably because, as we know, so many people are asymptomatic, um, or at least that's what we're hearing and understand, um, but also because on the perception threshold, which is part of the, the uh, triangle things that you're attempting to balance, that's helpful to that cause as well. Um, having to turn somebody right. away, you're being on a hot bus and their temperature is a little bit elevated when they really, you know, may or may not actually have coronavirus. Right. No, that's exactly right. It, it, it feeds into those three decisions that we're trying to balance or those three yeah. factors we're trying to balance. Yeah. So some of the things I'm just going to rush through this, some of the things in operations include a full paperless, you know, using just email and digital and looking at documents on your, on your computer that keeps people away from the copy machine, uh, telephonic communication. That means if you're in the same building, and you're, you know, you're in different offices and you have a meeting instead of getting together in a conference room, you, you get together on, you know, a, a web based uh, communication service or something like that. Like we've all been using for the past couple months. Uh, elevator occupancy limits, uh, scheduled appointments, you know, consider your seating configuration with appointments. You know, if you have waiting room, you don't want to over schedule your appointments and then crowd a waiting room. Uh, building occupancy is, of course, a consideration for a lot of municipalities and their opening up procedures. Uh, hours of operation. I've already touched on that, and personal distancing. Um, as I'm going to, I'm going to refer to your local requirements on that one. Uh, training recommendations. So I, I would encourage you again: employ existing equipment and infrastructure. If you have uh, existing floor cleaning uh, equipment, utilize it. If you have existing, and, and utilize it in the same way. Uh, you, you, if you have existing uh, pr procedures, if you're a food manufacturing or a food. Uh, uh, you know, preparation company, and you have you already have disinfectant that you use on all your surfaces. Uh, generally speaking, and I, of course it's it depends, um, but generally speaking, those disinfectants are are usually capable of killing this virus. We want to refer back to this to the uh, EPA list of chemicals that we know can kill it, um, but you don't want to change things too much. You know, uh, maybe increase the intensity, uh, but not necessarily rewriting the whole program. So make sure employees are trained on proper disinfection protocols, but chances are they probably already have been to some degree. And lead by example, always lead by example. Um, this is this is uh, a, really a critical point, I think, and, I, and I'm going to park here for just a second. Um, when, when it comes to implementing 
any procedure, any policy, if you have not led by example in the past, and you need to stop and ask yourself that hard question, have we been leading by example or have we been communicating effectively and honestly with our, with our uh, employees and with the public on matters of health and safety, whether that is a chemical safety issue from years past or a forklift or semi-traffic or whatever your facility has, if you have not been leading by example and you have not been focused on proper communication of those hazards and mitigation of those hazards, why should anybody believe management now? And, and I'm, I'm being a little bit to the point here, but we've got to ask ourselves <laughs> these honest questions. Why should somebody listen to me now? What am I doing differently? And, and to kind of summarize it, one of the things that you know I've been saying is people don't really care what you know unless they really truly believe that you care. And so if that's the case, uh, you really need to first on first off work on your interpersonal communication with your employees, work on communication, get out on the floor, get out in that process area where they are and show them that you're really looking at it, bring in some outside resources, take a hard look at this. Even if you don't think there's an issue, take a hard look and, and show them that you care, show them that you're doing what it takes. For ongoing reevaluation, uh, there's a difference between proactive and reactive. Of course, there's a, there's a place for each of them. If there is a, a known case, a hot case, it comes back positive, and you know that that employee was in X, position X, Y, and Z on this production line, you want to make sure that you are reactive to that. You know, get somebody in to clean it. Get somebody in to test the surfaces uh, if that's where, where you need to go, and that's what the employees are demanding or, or whatever your situation is. You know, we're, we're doing this a lot. We're getting in to, to facilities, and we're saying, hey, where was this person? Let's track it down. Let's figure this out. Let's get everybody, you know, to a place where they're comfortable. And, and we'll get back some negative results after cleaning and, and we'll move forward. Uh, so these are things that, that I think you really want to focus on. Uh, understand your facility and your business. This is, that's a huge thing. That's a summary of everything we've already talked, at, talked about. Understanding what you do, what your circumstances and, and what your challenges are. What kind of professionals are out there? I am a certified industrial hygienist, a CIH. A CIH is somebody who, who is certified to, uh, to perform the process of of essentially um, looking at hazards in the workplace or looking at workplaces and being able to anticipate where those hazards exist, recognize when they do actually exist, uh, quantify how much of that hazard is really there and how much is actually uh, affecting people, and then mitigating those hazards or controlling those hazards. And so it's a whole process. If you don't have one of those steps in the process, you're kind of shooting from the hip. And so what we do is we start at the top and we go down. That's airborne hazards. That's, you know, Going, uh, for example, I might go into a place and, and work on uh, an acid gas coming off of a dip tank and try to figure out how that employee is not going to be exposed to that. This is really not much different. This is a, a situation where the hazard could be anywhere where there are people. And the controls, while they are vastly larger, they are very similar. And so uh, a certified industrial hygienist is somebody who looks at that aspect of things to keep people safe. Uh, there are also HVAC professionals. There are also epidemiologists, professional engineers, PhD engineers. Uh, these people, you know, chemical engineers, these people can speak to their own individual component of your reopening policy. So when is a CIH visit recommended? Um, CIH is, is someone who's, who's certified by the American Board of Industrial Hygiene. And, and this is really important for initial brainstorming. If you're just lost in the weeds and you don't understand where should we go from here, initial brainstorming is a great time to bring somebody in to talk about what are the factors we're looking at, what are the what are the challenges, and how are other people doing it? Uh, if anyone comes in and says that they're an expert in COVID-19, you know they're lying to you because it's only been around for a very short period of time. They can be an expert in the principles that defend against con contraction and spread of COVID-19. And so this is a great distinction. When we come in, it's all new to everyone, but you know, I'm I'm in a lot of different places and I'm talking to a lot of different people and we're working through a lot of different challenges related to this. And I can bring that to the table and other CIHs can bring that to the table. And so that's that initial brainstorming is a great time. Follow up implementation and review of policies. Is it working? Do we need to make any changes? What other what are other people doing to make these changes after changes in configuration or process? It's kind of the same thing. Is it working? Do we need to change anything? So Dan, as far as method out. Yeah, go ahead. Um, we there's a lot that you are providing related to um, what kinds of things, what sort of remediation, what sort of, um, I know you're going to get into some verification testing and those kinds of things mm -hmm. and, and some of the really technical aspects, but um, 
as a part of the brainstorming phase in particular, how much of your time is spent on just explaining the why? So a lot of your time is, is, um, is developing the what, what are we going to do and how are we going to implement it? But how much of your time is devoted also in that brainstorming phase about why are we doing the things that we're doing and, and um, how much time do you feel that you're spending on those kinds of things, especially as we're all st still very early into this pandemic and trying to understand what it means for us personally and professionally yeah. in all aspects of our lives? It, it depends on the person. If you're somebody who has a good, if I'm talking to somebody who has a good grip on health and safety, and they always have, or they have recently had a good grip on health and safety, they're generally gonna be asking the why. They're saying, okay, these are what I think uh, I wanna do, and, and, and you, are you are recommending this. Why are you recommending this? Let's really parse through this and figure out what's gonna be appropriate. If you are somebody who hasn't really addressed health and safety or this kind of health and safety, and you are now panicked and you don't know what to do, Generally, you're saying, you know, if I'm talking to somebody like that, generally the response is, tell me what to do. I don't care why. Just tell me how to do it and when to do it, and I'm going to do it, and then we're going to open up and we're going to try to survive, right? So it depends on the person. It's, it's definitely uh, a different type of response across the board. Yeah. Um, so as far as the methodology, and that's a good lead into the methodology, um, the frequent touch points, these are doors, workstations, computer workstations, transaction equipment for retail establishments tools, vehicles, restrooms, et cetera. That's a big et cetera, right? There's a lot of different things uh, that can be that can be considered a frequent touch point. So as it concerns cleaning, if you have a lot of touch points, consider trying to find where that where that hotspot is. Well that hotspot is our hands, right? So if, if our touch points are vast, it, it might be a whole lot easier to control it at the source. And that's an industrial hygiene principle. We always try to control things at the source rather than letting it spread around everywhere and then trying to capture it much harder to do. And so if you can if you can focus, if you have a lot of touch points, I'm going to recommend that you focus on hand hygiene and cough and sneeze etiquette. That means that means pound that into the put that as the focus of your learning curve, right? That's going to go a lot longer of way for you. For surfaces, surfaces include desks and tables and break room tables and break room counters and uh, product and food preparation, whether or not that's your business or just something internal, uh, transaction counters, et cetera. Again, a big et cetera. And to the same point, and hygiene, cough, and sneeze etiquette is going to go a long way if you have a lot of these things. There have been a lot of questions asked about indoor air as well. So this includes just a lot of topics, but I'm just going to hit, hit on two, temperature and humidity. We know that, that um, temperature, higher temperature kills the virus better. Uh, but there's only so high of a temperature that you, you know that you can put people through. Of course, ASHRAE uh, is a, is an organization that speaks to this, and ASHRAE is the, the basically the HVAC organization in the United States, the private sector organization that speaks technically to all of this. And you know there there's not necessarily going to be a huge difference between keeping your your thermostat at 72 and keeping it at 82. You're not going to just all of a sudden kill all the virus, and especially you know, kill all the virus in people who are continually transmitting it to each other while they're standing and looking at each other in the face. And so I'm going to encourage you to not disregard, but it's not as high of a priority. And that's what ASHRAE says. They say it doesn't have as much of an impact on uh, on spread of the virus as other factors do. So keep your HVAC maintained, uh, but don't go around trying to reset everything and trying to reconfigure everything and ripping things out and putting in new systems and all that. Humidity is a good one uh, to keep a check on. If you have very large air air volume, it's a big manufacturing floor, big shopping mall, a big department store. It's really difficult to change humidity. Humidity also um, is, is challenging because a lot of electronics and things don't respond well to humidity and product services and that kind of thing. But you wanna stay between about 30 and 60%. That's what's recommended by Atrey. Let's talk briefly about fallout rates and then we'll get into some more technical stuff. So in an HVAC system, the reason that we're not really concerned about it from an airflow and capture perspective is because of the size of a particle. So this picture on the right, I, I, uh, if you take a, it is, it's basically the size of a, of a ballpoint pen. You press a ballpoint pen into a piece of paper and make the smallest dot that you can still see. It's gonna be about 200 microns in diameter. Okay, so if you, if you then establish in your mind that that's your baseline and then take you know, one twentieth of that. You're now at ten microns. That's the beginning of the respirable range, 
And so we're talking about really, really small stuff here. Well, when our spittle, when we talk, those particles that come out of our mouth with saliva and other things in them before they are desiccated and dehydrated down to their nucleus is about uh, 65, approximately in that range of 65 microns. So much larger than the respirable range. And so over here, I, I've got a, a picture um, of the white dot on the left is a spittle particle, basically. And the dot on the right is the one that uh, is the size of the virus. And if you're looking closely, you'll recognize that you can't see it, <laughs> right? So I'm looking and I can't see it. I've got two arrows pointing right at it. It's there. I blew it up and I made it proportional. It's there. There is a pixel right there or some type, some fraction of a pixel. It's very, very small virus. And so we're talking about most of the, uh, of the saliva, most of the size of that particle is saliva. It's not the virus itself. And so it captures that saliva, it captures that virus and it drops it down. And so here's a real basic uh, description of that. If you have half a micron, it's gonna take 41 hours for it to fall five feet. And that half a micron is about three times the size of the virus. The smaller it is, the longer it takes to fall out. So basically, if it, if it was infectable, if it, was, if it survived on its own without the protection of a, of a droplet, it would be basically indefinitely in the air. But that's not what we're, what we're being told. Uh, one micron falls out about 12 hours, three microns, hour and a half, 10 microns, 8.2 minutes, 100 microns, which is closer to our saliva, 5.8 seconds, and it's fallen, fallen five feet. Most HVAC systems are not going to have the, the, the flow capture velocity to capture something into that system within 5.8 seconds before it hits the floor. That's part of why we're saying HVAC isn't a big deal. And, of course, we're looking at, at this. Uh, you have your ballistic trajectory of something coming out of your mouth. You know, if, it, if it's falling in 5.8 seconds, and you're looking at somebody, you're, you're not likely to project something out and have it continue to go all the way into their face. It's gonna go and then drop down. And so there, there are, it's, I'm, I'm kind of oversimplifying it here, um, but there is definitely a factor in the simple physics of particles that are coming out of our mouths. So social distancing is real. Yeah, yeah. If you're right next to each other and you're talking, there are these droplets and it's coming out. And there are a lot of studies that are continually showing us that it travels a little ways, uh, but it does fall out pretty quickly, generally speaking, which is why six feet is viable and 25 feet is not required. <clears throat> All right. Um, there's a difference between open workspaces and industrial workstations and offices, of course, because we share the space in industrial workstations and we share the space in open workspaces. And we, uh, we, we share equipment like copy machines and that kind of thing. Uh, and offices, we generally keep them secluded. And so uh, these are gonna, going to require a different type of approach. Let's talk briefly about verification testing in the time we have left. Uh, there is, there's the option to do pre and post treatment uh, testing. And so what this tells us is if we test before and we test after for specific items, we can look at the efficiency and efficacy of cleaning operations. There's a difference between cleaning and disinfection. Cleaning is removing particles from a surface, removing things, you know, stains and things off the surface. Disinfection is just what, just that it is, it is removing the infectability of a certain uh, material. So how do we do this? We, how do we do this testing? We do surface swabbing. Surface swabbing is the most effective way right now uh, partially because, as as was found out in a review of the Homeland Security BioWatch program, which which looks for bioterrorism and things, and has been around for years, they pull in a lot of volume of air into a sample, and it, it's a challenge for them, and they they're very technical about it to to not actually kill the things that they're capturing. So if I if I impact a virus on a filter and I draw it in through air and I pass a whole bunch of air by it and I am desiccating the moisture off of that, the protective moisture. I'm going to end up killing that thing, and I'm never going to be able to find it because I can't grow it now. I can't grow it in culture, and, and it's very difficult to find. And so surface testing is a better option for us because generally in the field, we're not as sophisticated as the Department of Homeland Security on these highly complex setups for capturing these things and keeping them alive. So we have three different types, types of, of surface testing. Uh, one is going to be the, the really most important one for, for clearance testing is is reverse transcription polymerase chain reaction. That's PCR. We've heard it as RT-PCR, PCR. This is something around for a little while. It's pretty new. It's a, definitely an advanced technology, but you could, you know, for the for years past, you could send something in and say, well, what is this? And to a laboratory, what kind of 
a living organism was this, and they'll look at its DNA or its RNA, and they will find exactly what it was. And, um, and so we've used this for in various different applications uh, over the years. Now, what this can do for us is we can take a swab of a surface and say, is that virus actually there? Have we removed it? Do we, can we get a negative? Is it all gone? And that's really, really important, especially for calming people's fears and bringing people back to the workplace after cleaning to show that it's safe again. Another one is disinfection verification. So this is, this is not cleaning verification. This is how well am I killing things on the surface? So because we don't know that the virus is there, if we, <clears throat> excuse me, if we put, uh, uh, if we take a test for the virus and we get a negative, it doesn't mean that we've killed the virus. It means it may never have been there, but whatever the case, we just didn't find it. And so that's really good for clearance. But when we're looking at efficacy, generally we're gonna get a zero before and a zero after if we're looking for the virus, if, if we didn't run into it. <clears throat> and it's hard to run into it sometimes. If we are looking for uh, a bacteria that is a, an environmentally available bacteria, we will find some before, almost everywhere. And then we will not find some afterwards if we've done a good job. And so that's a good cleaning efficacy type of test. So here I've got a couple examples. We ran a test last week uh, just, just for demonstration purposes. And, and I cultured this thing and, and, and we grew some bacteria. And basically, uh, you know, you do no disinfectant, there's no dwell time or whatever. Well, we have 14 colony forming units on the polymer surface, which was a tabletop, a polymer tabletop used by people in our office. We added bleach in a dilution. We had added uh, H2O2 or, or hydrogen peroxide and uh, isopropyl alcohol and Dawn dish soap at concentrations recommended by CDC and Lysol. Everything followed the CDC recommendations with a 20 second dwell time. Well, you notice that all of them became zeros. We killed everything except for Lysol. Well, I thought Lysol was supposed to kill 99.99% of everything. <clears throat> well, that's true. But you notice that its dwell time was 20 seconds. And if you read the bottle, its dwell time should be six minutes. And so you, this is a demonstration. You want to use things as they're designed to be used. We're not making anything new here. This is, this is what we've always known about these products. And so this demonstrates it. Another one on a stainless, you can see it went from 292 on a door that you can see here in the, in, in the picture. There's a doorknob uh, or door panel uh, that was tested and we went from 292 to zero. It's pretty effective cleaning. The last one I'm gonna talk about is the ATP test. We're looking for a chemical marker for an ATP molecule or for a, for a living organization or organism. ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is a, is a chemical, it's a molecule that's present in every life form. It's present in our body, it's present in our somatic cells, in viruses and bacteria. And you can see it's very prevalent. We got 339 with none. And then we dropped it down to six with bleach and nine with H2O2 and 102 in alcohol. Well, did that mean that alcohol wasn't killing everything? Well, we got zeros on alcohol last time. Why is it not killing everything here? Well, it's because we're not looking for live organisms. We're looking for a chemical marker and IPA doesn't actually degrade that chemical marker very well. And so this is something where you wanna bring an expert in and you want, if you're doing this test, it has some great benefits. I can get results in 15 seconds and really point you in the right direction, but we have to tie this into using the right cleaning chemical. And so that's why it's a verification of cleaning and not necessarily disinfection. And so we wanna make sure that our understanding and our interpretation of data is appropriate. Otherwise we're gonna get lost in the weeds very quickly. Hey Dan, I know that you've got a few more um, um, few more points to make, and I just wanted to remind the audience that uh, we're going to keep the webinar running for uh, a few minutes uh, beyond the hour. So, um, Dan, I, I want to make sure that we're not cutting you off prematurely. So, um, you've got um, you know we can certainly keep it running another ten minutes or so. All right, I'll try to go quickly here. <clears throat> um, the uh, the the as I mentioned, the ATP test. It's it's lower cost at higher volumes, uh, and it looks for cleaning and it gives you a, a result very quickly. So this is an option that you can use uh, to very quickly determine, uh, are we doing it the right way? Are we not? Do we need to re reassess? You know, we're not waiting 72 hours for a laboratory to culture our bacteria and get numbers that way, or even longer uh, sometimes in order to get a result on, on uh, RT-PCR. AIHA, the American Industrial Hygiene Association, accredits laboratories. Uh, not everything is all, not every laboratory is accredited. This is a good starting point basically for, uh, for us to understand the, the reliability of data. And so we can rest in a AHA accreditation. Now, personally, when I'm going to use a laboratory, I take a tour and I look at them from a technical basis and I, and, and we go through and, and watch their process and that kind of thing. 
Um, but that accreditation verifies that someone, a professional, has already done that. And so that's a really good thing to keep in mind. If you're using lab analysis, accreditation is, is important if you're going to rely on that data. Initial testing, we can do testing uh, as, a, as a decision Testing is a decision of is a decision of process that is, that is process de, uh, dependent. Excuse me, and that decision means that uh, well, should, should, if we haven't had people in the facility for some time, should you know maybe weeks, no human at, at all, should we do initial testing for the virus? Probably not because we know it doesn't likely survive that long. But should we do initial testing for how well we're cleaning? That would be a good idea. So initial clearance, maybe not initial, you know, efficacy, probably establish disinfection efficacy, establish cleaning efficacy so you know what you're doing going forward. How often should I do it? Well, how often do things change? Uh, how often do I have new shifts coming in? Do I have turnover of my cleaning staff? Do I want to evaluate efficacy over and over and over to make sure that it's not degrading over time? That's probably a good idea. We do that for a lot of folks. Uh, Post-incident clearance. I know I've had a hot case. I know I've had a, 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 a positive uh, individual working in an area. We need to go in and clear it. We need to uh, test it for the virus and clear and clear it for others to go back. That's generally uh, something that we'll do and something that is requested. We can also evaluate the trend in disinfection efficacy and the trend in cleaning efficacy. If it's going up, then kind of begs the question: Well, why? Maybe maybe it's because people are getting better at it. Uh, if it's going, maybe it's because we're doing it more often and that compounding effect isn't there. If it's going down, bigger question again: Why? And can we do something about it? So these tell us some interesting things. One of the final topics on cleaning that I want to point out is mapping. And we've done mapping in all kinds of different ways at Karameda. And, and we've brought in some new technology and really done a lot of interesting things. But you ask yourself, okay, if I take a swab and I drag it all over a building that's got two stories and 68 office spaces, and I get a positive result, well, what, what now? That means somewhere across two, two stories and 68 office spaces, there is a virus out there somewhere. What do I do now? It's very hard to get a directive out of that. And so we want to be careful at how much we're aggregating samples. So we want to split them up appropriately. So basically you could say, well, I'm going to take uh, several different points throughout the building and I'm going to mark them specifically to those points or those aggregate points if I'm doing multiple. And then, and then I'm going to throw them in you know, to, a, to a bag and send them to the lab or whatever the appropriate handling is. And then I'm going to get a result back. It says, okay, in these areas, I've got, you know, five areas that have a virus, we need to work on that, or five areas in cleaning efficacy that does not meet our threshold of acceptability. So I need to focus on that. But two that are you know, approaching that, that line and, and four that are okay. And so what this does, it gives you some more information on what you should do going forward and where you should focus your, your resources. Uh, types of face coverings, there's a lot out there. <clears throat> there's a filtering face piece, there's source control, there's other occupationally required respirators. There's a question out there that comes up often. I have to wear a respirator for my job anyway. Can I, does that work for the virus? If it's a NIOSH respirator, yes. If it's a NIOSH respirator, it's, it's, it's okay because the N95 is the lowest grade and up from there, they get better and better and better at removing uh, these particles. <clears throat> so that's, that's about uh, it for, for me as far as that technical content. I know you probably have some more questions. That's great, Dan. Thank you so much. It's um, been really insightful um, in many ways for me, comforting, uh, I guess. Um, I don't know if you get that a lot, but um, comforting to know that uh, there's a lot of rich content that's available to us um, already and professionals who are accustomed to working in this space and mm -hmm. um Sometimes the news and the science feels overwhelming uh, and shifts, and uh, I feel like we learn a little bit more every day, um, uh, but knowing that, that there are professionals who know how to live with a virus uh, and helping to, to train the rest of us to, to do the same and, and slowly start to adapt to our reopening. You've touched on a lot of things today, and, and I'm thinking about uh, a couple of the highlights around company culture, um, 
your point earlier about um, will your will your employees believe you and um, the communication style that's implemented? I mean, those are really really important um, sentiments and and something that um, I'm I'm really glad you wouldn't think a technical expert would have reason to be highlighting those kinds of things, but it just goes to show you, I suppose, just how how paramount those um, those baseline issues are. I want to remind everybody that um, this recording is going to be available on demand. There's also a resource. Uh, page that has Dan's information, uh, more information about Karamita, some global resources on this topic. Um, there's also a consultation request form uh, if you decide that you need uh, a little more information and um, want to understand a little bit more about how uh, Karamita may be able to assist you or your, your business. Um, I think that that wraps up our program today. Pete, Thanks again, Jennifer, for guiding the discussion, and also to Dan and the good folks at Karamita for providing materials for today's presentation. For those listening in that would like to learn more about Karamita and the services that they can provide to help your business reopen safely, please email us at podcasts at ela.law for more information. Also, to connect with any of our ELA lawyers around the globe, you'll find them easily on the ELA website at ela.law. Just click on the green widget in the middle of the home page. Search and scan our 176 jurisdictions around the world. Also from the website, you can create a free account that'll give you access to upcoming webinars, download white papers, get access to on-demand content, or use our ELA's exclusive Global Employers Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Pete Waltz. Thanks for listening.